We're in part 29. We're about halfway through uh, this book. I've entitled uh, this message, An Undeniable Witness. Now, before we read the text, we're going to be going uh, through verses 3 through 14. I just want to review where we're at in this. And uh, what we have here is this continuing conversation between John, who's the one writing the Revelation, and this colossal angel that we saw in the previous chapter, who I think, I think a good argument can be made that that colossal angel is Christ himself. We are in the uh, sixth trumpet of judgment. So you have seven trumpets of judgment. We're in the sixth trumpet later on this chapter. Next week, we'll be in the seventh and final trumpet of judgment. But we also have learned is John is no longer just a mere conveyor of information. Now he's been brought into the drama. He's been called to eat this little book. And by that little book, I took to understand, at least I'm convinced, that little book is another prophecy that we're going to see in uh, chapters 13 through 18 that relate mainly to the Roman Empire. But he's called to do this, and so he's eating it, but he's going to prophesy about that later. He is then called to take some measurements, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He's to measure the, the temple. He's to measure the altar. He's actually to measure the, the worshipers. And what we uh, discussed there was that there's a judgment coming. So he's measuring the temple the altar, and the worshipers, which I take to understand to be the true church. And he's called not to measure a certain place, the outer court, which are going to be tread underfoot for 42 months by the Gentiles. We've got this, this, uh, this prophecy of this judgment coming, but the ones who are measured will escape the judgment. But Israel, Jerusalem of that time, are going to find that they are no longer part of the inner court, but they're on the outer court, and they're the ones who are going to be trampled underfoot. But the ones who listened to Christ in the Olivet Discourse, which we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the ones who obeyed what Jesus said, which I would take to be the ones who are measured here, actually escaped that judgment, headed to the hills of Pella, and not one of them found themselves under the sword of the Romans. Yet at the same time, the, the Israelites, the ones in Jerusalem who rejected the teaching of Christ, remained there and found that they were, in fact, trampled underfoot. All this to say, at least in review, that sometimes faith and obedience to Christ, sometimes it means facing death. I mean, we, there, there is in the Bible and through the course of history, a litany of people who, in their obedience, faced death. But sometimes, faith and obedience results, as here, in escaping death. But always, faith and obedience always results in eternal life. And we never want to lose focus on that as we're examining the intricacies of this book. Now, verses 3 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. 
And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the day of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we readily admit the difficulty of understanding the words, these words so extravagant, so dire, so violent, and yet, if we examine them closely at the same time, so hopeful. So, Father, we do pray that you would give us sound minds to understand what you would have us learn, what you would have us know when it comes to this message initially sent to those seven churches but now given to churches throughout the world, throughout the course of history. So teach us, Father, what we should know about who you are, what you're doing, your call in our lives, and how we should respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's kind of, uh, you know, dig into this a little bit. In verses 2 and 3, we see a number that appears with some regularity in Revelation. Actually, we see it not only in Revelation, but other places as well. 42 months. We also see 1,260 days, which is about the same amount of time. And then not as clear, but probably the same amount of time, is time, times, and half a time. We're going to see that in chapter 12. We also see that in Daniel. Now, there is a ton of speculation regarding this time frame. Some put a couple of these end-to-end, because it's about three and a half years. So what you've probably heard is the seven-year tribulation. How many of you have heard of the seven-year tribulation, right? So I'll take two of these, kind of put them end-to-end. That's one of the more popular views, and people say this is the tribulation that's going to happen after, you know, the rapture, assuming you're pre-tribulational and all that stuff. I, I respectfully disagree with that view. Others say that this period is the entire church age. So the, the three and a half years, this, this is the idealist view. Those who were in Sunday school where we talked about the different views, this is the idealist view. And they'll, they'll say, well, these, this three and a half years actually represents the entire church age. 
Other people say, well, they, they employ what you call a, a day for a year theory. And there are people who are saying, well, no, this is 1,260 years. A certain point, <laughs> somebody laughs. Again, don't record that because I, I've been told that there are people who have you listening online. And I have to say, sound people throughout history have held that view. But they're kind of going, well, it's a 1,260-year period. Somewhere in the church age, probably, they would argue, during the, you know, during the Roman Catholic era. It's, it's when Rome, the Roman Catholics, kind of ruled, as it were, the kingdom. I'm going to just tell you, I respectfully disagree with all those positions. I don't think they're crazy. I don't want to be uncharitable, but I don't think they're right. Now, this amount of time, this three and a half years, I think does carry a message in a spiritual sense. It is the amount of time first seen in Daniel, anticipating the siege of Jerusalem by Antiochus Epiphanes. So we do see some history there. It was also the length of time of the drought in Israel for which Elijah prayed. It was a three and a half year period. That's why, by the way, some people, and we'll get there in a second, some people view Elijah as one of the two witnesses because he was the one who prayed that there would be no rain for three and a half years. What do I think? I think it makes most sense to view this as the period of time that Rome sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D., I think that's how the original readers would have understood this, that there was, in fact, almost exactly three and a half years that Rome attacked Jerusalem as Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse and destroyed the temple and killed a million Jews. I think that's the period of time. Although, and I'll just say this, because that would have been between about 66 and 70, but also Nero, and we'll get to him a little bit later, not today, Nero was persecuting Christians between 64 and 68, the same amount of time. So it could be, because we see a couple of references, there could be overlap, it could be both of those. But I think, I think this text, the whole text of Revelation, convincingly argues, that if you read it in its very natural sense, that John is telling his readers that something for about three and a half years is about to take place. I think that makes the most sense of the, of the actual time period. Well, speculations are numerous. But here is something I think appears obvious. It's not three and a half years. It's not a terribly short period of time compared to verse 9, where we're going to have three and a half days, right? You say you have three and a half years, then you're going to have three and a half days. So it's not a terribly short period of time. But it's not a terribly long period of time either compared to Revelation 20, where we're going to see a thousand years. So it's, it's kind of a, a long enough period of time to kind of wear you out a little bit. But you'll get through it. Yeah, I have to say, when I was looking at this, I thought to myself, COVID, protocols, right? We're at about, what are we at? About, about two years right now, two and a half years. How many of you have uttered the words, I'm over it? I just, I'm just about done. I'm, I'm over it. And yeah, you know, God willing, that's, we're kind of at the tail end of that. I don't want to prognosticate here. but And we, here we are. We're all here for the most part. We've gotten through it. So, so I don't think, I think that if that period lasted 40 years, I may not be here. 
it would be a, the landscape would be way different. So I think at very least, when we look at the time frame of three and a half years versus three and a half days, we're looking at a time, and, I, and I'm one of those churches that I'm kind of going, something rough is going to take place. There's going to be prophesying. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be damage. It's three and a half years, and it's somewhat doable. We can get through this, is the way I understand at least that time frame. Well, then, to make matters more difficult, we are then introduced to two of the most enigmatic cast members of Revelation, right? The two witnesses, right? The two witnesses. I'm going to tell you with absolute certainty who they are. Wait a minute. Actually, I wrote, I would love to tell you with absolute certainty who these two witnesses are. And if you think um, I'm going to pull that off, you have a much higher opinion of me than you should. But I will tell you some of the options out there. And again, these are sound options by theologians who I really respect, making pretty good arguments for why these are the two witnesses. And I'm not going to get into detail what the arguments are. I'm just going to tell you who they think these two witnesses might be. Some say uh, Peter and James. It's not in your notes, but I had to add that because the, the list kind of is long. Some say, well, it's Peter and James, and they make arguments, good arguments. Some say Moses and Elijah. Some say it's the Moses and Elijah of the past. Some th- say it's the Moses and Elijah of the future, you know, like a, a, the John the Baptist, Elijah, and so forth. Some say it's Enoch and Elijah because of how they're raptured. Some say it's the law and the prophets. Others say it's the law and the gospel. Some say it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some say it's the church and the state. And you'll see that why that in, in just a minute. Some say it's the martyrs. Others say it's the Christian church. And others say it's the Christian church at the end of the age. Well, there you have most, I think, of the options. Now, I'm going to tell you, we're not going to spend a lot of time ferreting this out. In a minute, I'll tell you what I think. If I was forced to make a choice, I'll tell you what I think it is, who they are. But here's something else. The passage that we're reading tells us a little bit about these two witnesses. It's not, it's not, the, it's not as if the two witnesses are mentioned and there's nothing said about them. We see in verse 4 a metaphor I think worth examining. Talking about the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, this, that right there that we just read, is an undeniable reference to what we read in Zechariah chapter 4. Let me read that short passage, just two verses. I mean, it's a longer passage, but I'm just going to read so you see the relationship. Zechariah 4, 2, and 3, And he said to me, What do you see? I said... I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it, and seven, lampstand, and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. So we see here lamps, lampstands, and olive trees. So what in Zechariah, for those of you who don't know, Zechariah is in the Old Testament, right? This is, um, 
not in the New Testament. This is referring to some, there is some immediate context to that message in Zechariah. And I would say what that, what that is talking about in Zechariah is the power of the Spirit of God in the rebuilding of the temple. That's the immediate context. We have, we have Joshua, the high priest, and we have Zerubbabel, and one is, one is a religious figure, the other is a civil figure. And so you have, in reference to those two figures, this imagery. And so that's why some people say, well, it's the church and the state, because Joshua was a religious figure, the church, Zerubbabel was a political figure, the state. Yet, we're going to read in a minute that they have the power to shut up the heavens and turn water into blood, and that is not Joshua, that is not Zerubbabel. Who, who are those? Who has the ability to shut up the heavens? Elijah. And who had the ability to turn water into blood? Moses. Right? So you're like, ah, so calm down. See, see, how, see how it's kind of difficult? You're like, going, ah. But let's dial in to what is clear here, I think. I think what we have to recognize is the, the olive trees or the olive branches, these anointed ones, that are next to the lamps are continually feeding the lamps. What you have here is a never-ending supply of energy to keep the lamps lit. I mean, it'd be like driving your car and having a, you know, a, a gas pump right next to you the whole time, which we actually may need, right? Some <laughs> way things are going these days and, and a whole bunch of money. But that's what the, the image is. The image is you've got these, this lampstand and you've got these olive trees and the oil is feeding the lamps so that they remain lit. So what we have here, I think the image here is that the witnesses, whoever they might be, are eternally fueled by the Holy Spirit of God. And I think if you look at Zechariah, and we don't have time to study that entirely, but the ultimate, an unstoppable success that we read about in Zechariah which John is appealing to in the Revelation, is this idea that the, when the Holy Spirit has decided that this is going to happen, nothing can stop it. Matter of fact, this, the, I think you might be familiar with Zechariah 4.6. Then he said to me, right, this is kind of like, well, can we really get the temple rebuilt? Are we going to be able to do it of our own power? Is the success going to be dependent upon us? Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So you get the imagery here, right? The imagery here is you've got these lamps that need to remain lit, and you've got these olive trees that are continually feeding it so that it continues to remain lit. And now John uses that in the Revelation, talking about the two witnesses, saying that's what they are, and their witnesses are eternally fueled by the Holy Spirit. They will not fatigue Nothing is going to stop them. 
I mean, we could spend a lot of time, and again, I'm going to tell you in a minute who I think, if I were forced to make a guess, who they are. And I think we've got to be careful, as I've said before, not to be precise, where God is imprecise, and so I'm not going to plant my flag here. You know, some of the other arguments are pretty good, but here's something that seems to be very clear, and that is their witness is eternally fueled by the Holy Spirit, therefore without fatigue. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and they will not faint. This idea that it is going to continue, it is going to continue, it is going to continue. And not only that, there's something else we see that should be obvious when you have the two witnesses. And that is that in the law of Moses, two witnesses were required for a certain conviction. We see in Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So again, we can sit around and talk a lot about who they are, but I think what's more important is for us to recognize is that their testimony is without fatigue, their testimony is certain, and God has given sufficient witness so that when we deny him, we are denying something that we know to be true. People, you know, will, you know, wonder, you know, how is it, you know, that I can access the Christian God? How, How does that happen? How smart do I have to be? How good do I have to be? How humble do I have to be? You know, what's the road for me to get there? And let me tell you, there's no road for you to get there. You don't go there. He comes here. And we don't figure it out. It's not for the smartest. It's not for the person who, you know, and I, I, not that I don't appreciate these testimonies that you see from certain guys who are like, I started out as an atheist. And as I was seeking to prove atheism, I proved to myself God existed. And I'm like, okay, I appreciate the sentiment behind that. But how smart do you have to be, right? Does, what, what do I need to know? What kind of discipline must I pursue in order for me to get where God wants me to be? And I would say, well, the Scripture declares quite clearly that when God creates us, He instills in us what John Calvin called the sensus divinitatis, the sense of divinity. Every single person knows God. Not a saving knowledge, but a knowledge, a sure knowledge of God. It is absolutely clear. You can call for all the evidence you want, but it is self-evidently true. And the Word of God carries its own self-authority. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 48, that my words are sufficient to judge you on judgment day. So what we have are two witnesses. What we have is that which leaves us without excuse. And so we can revolve all around who these two witnesses are, but the point here is that they are without fatigue and the conviction is certain. And I feel like all the guessing kind of leads us down, you know, a red herring of a path. Well, I told you I was going to tell you who I thought they were. 
I guess if I were forced to tell you who I think the two witnesses are, it would be the testimony and the true testimony of the Old Covenant Church and the New Covenant Church. And I'll get to that in a, you know, in a minute why I think that is, but I think what you have is you have, you have this true testimony coming still from the Old Covenant, which is about to be crushed. It seemingly dies, we'll see in a minute, but then it comes back to life, in its full expression in the New Covenant Church. So I think what we have here, and I think that plays well with people who are saying it's the Law and the Prophets or it's the Old, you know, the Old Testament Prophets and the New Testament Apostles and what have you. So I think it's, it's something along those lines, this idea that there is a message being conveyed revolving around the temple, which is about to be destroyed. But out of that temple, even though it is destroyed, there will come life out of it that which seems to be dead will come back to life. And I think what we have is there the testimony of the old and new covenants. Well, they um, are told, we are told in the passage that, you know, they're going to finish and nobody can kill them. And if they try to kill them, they're going to be killed and so forth. So they're not going to be killed, at least for a while. Then we read in verse 7, They finish their testimony, and they're killed. And here, for the first time in Revelation, we have another character who I'm sure you've heard of, the beast. The beast shows up here for the first time with no introduction, no definition, no nothing. Now, I'm going to try to show you later that that beast is the Roman Empire. But I think what we have to grasp here is the hatred that Rome had for both Jews and Christians. I mean, you talk about, clearly they're going to come in and sack Jerusalem. But what Nero was doing to Christians was just unbearable. You know, I mean, you know the story, right, of fiddling while Rome burned, and then he burned Christians in his garden and these types of things. And you have to also understand this. At this juncture in history, the the Romans viewed the Christians, as just a sect of Judaism. It wasn't as if they understood the distinctions that were being made. So let me see if I can clarify here a little bit, because I can tell by the looks on your faces that I'm not being as clear as I could possibly be. Whatever true testimony was coming forth from the faithful prophets of the Old Covenant would be killed by Rome. Along with this, they had already killed many within the church. But the bottom line here is that the truth, and again, let's focus on what we can know, what we do understand. The truth, the true witness, for a time, appears to be dead. That's not unclear. Okay, so you've got these this period of time, which I think, you know, we can kind of dial in a bit. Then we have the two witnesses. And even though it might be unclear exactly who they are, we know that their witness is without fatigue and their witness is certain. And then we learn that for a time, that true witness will appear to be dead. So I, re- I was reading that and I thought, I mean, if I was there, right, and this true witness is coming forth, and let's just say, you know, I'm a believer, right, 
How would I feel if the witness, the true witness, was put to death? I mean, I, you can't help but think about the way maybe the apostles felt at the crucifixion of Jesus, where the truth was put to death. So we've got the true witness put to death. And I have to tell you, in all candor, there are times when I find myself quite discouraged by the Western evangelical theological landscape. And not just the theological landscape, the Western evangelical moral landscape. I, I look around at the church by which I am surrounded, and I, I find myself a bit, you know, weakened by looking at what's going on around me. It leaves me sometimes a bit empty when I, you know, when I look at, you know, who the top ministries are in America. Are the top, I'll walk, you know, I'll walk through a bookstore or I'll go on Amazon to look at the Christian books and the top-selling Christian books. And I mean, a part of me wants to weep. Part of, I mean, I feel like, you know, talk about, Elijah, you know, this Elijah, I feel like I got an Elijah complex, right? I and I alone, I'm left to serve the Lord, you know. But at the same time, I'll look at myself and go, yeah, that's a little discouraging too. The Lord would have to have me be the pastor of a church. Certainly, you can find somebody superior. I mean, it's this idea that you look around and you're like going, you know, where are the Jonathan Edwards? You know, where are the Calvins? Where are the Whitfields? Where, where are they, you know, I mean, in terms of our current culture? Now, I don't want to overstate this. I'm just trying to, trying to help us all understand where the writer is kind of bringing this church. Because I do feel like, you know, I don't feel all alone. I, I mean, I have to say, Ligonier Ministries is pretty good stuff. You know, the Bonson Project, I have access to the stuff he wrote and all that. Pretty good pretty good material. There's other stuff out there. But in light of the overpowering darkness, to be honest with you, the true faith can feel, as we read in this passage, like a corpse. And in our passage that we're reading, the true witness is not merely a corpse. It's a humiliated corpse in the midst of the city where Jesus was crucified. That that kind of adds to it, right? Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Was Jesus crucified in Sodom? Was he crucified in Egypt? No, where was he crucified? In Jerusalem. And so the very city that was designed to be the place where the truth from which it would emanate becomes dark. It becomes the place where they sought to snuff out the truth. I mean, to this day, I have to say, I have a little difficulty with referring to that area of the world as the Holy Land. Because Sodom and Egypt are not the Holy Land. And in the Bible, we're told that it's Sodom and Egypt. It's anything but holy. It became this land of darkness. The very religion in it was about as dark as any religious conviction could become. The temple had become a den of thieves. And upon that generation, all of the blood from Abel to Zechariah would fall because they had reached, as it were, the apex of darkness. 
And so you're like kind of going, look at good things are coming out of Jerusalem. But when Jesus came into Jerusalem, what did they do to him? They killed him. So the, the very place that should be the place of redemption becomes a place of darkness. Are you ready for that? I mean, are you as a Christian ready to handle that? Because I, I have to say, it's the way I feel sometimes when I'm driving and I see on a building that used to be a church but still has a cross on it, a rainbow banner. And I don't mean to get down on that one thing, except that's very aggressive in our current era. And I'm looking at that thinking to myself, that place should be a place of redemption. It should be a place of hope. It should be a place of transformation. It should be a place where people get a new life. And instead, what you're advertising is we're going to help you feel comfortable in your darkness. And it should break our hearts. Now, I, I, I don't want us to enter into an engagement of mean-spiritedness, but I do think that we should feel the way Jesus felt when he looked out and he realized that there are no shepherds here. And he looked upon the crowd and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the Bible says he had compassion. And we should have compassion. But we should still tell the truth. And I'll tell you, if you speak against that, you're going to find as we go on in this passage, that your words are going to be a source of torment. That's what happens here. It's like they're killing those two witnesses because their words tormented them. Well, to seek to proclaim the truth to a people that have sought to entomb the truth is going to be met with ridicule. Now keep in mind, he's telling these seven churches, right? Because they're on the edge, right? They're on the bubble. They may or may not make it. And he's kind of going, let me tell you what you're going to be dealing with, that there's going to be a source of ridicule headed your way. These two witnesses, when they're killed, they're not buried. Their dead bodies are left in the street. What does that even mean? Well, what that means, especially in that culture, and probably almost every culture, when you just leave somebody out there to rot, it's a sign of aggressive mockery and derision. It's this idea, just, you know what? They're dead. Don't bury them. Don't honor them. Don't do anything that would somehow extol them. Just let them rot. And we read in this passage that the ungodly make merry, and send gifts to one another. You know, I mean, right? When we do that when we're celebrating, right? I mean, Christmas, right? We get together, enjoy each other, we send gifts to one another. They're doing this because the truth, in their minds, is dead. I mean, you've got these, like, ungodly alliances that are made. I mean, one obvious example in the New Testament would be Pilate and Herod. I mean, not to get into the detail of that, but just so you know, Pilate and Herod did not like each other until Jesus was on trial. And they, the Bible goes out of its way to say, and then they became friends. All of a sudden, you've got these alliances aimed against the truth of Christ. Why? Because the truth 
is a source of torment. And you just need to know, I mean, the world's not going to have it. The world can talk all about tolerance and talk all about coexisting and all this stuff, but that is not the way it works. The way it works is, as the, the ways of the world ascend, the ways of Christ are not going to be tolerated. They must be disenfranchised. They must be put to death in humiliation. In, there are any number of ways Christians can be humiliated, you know, made to feel as if they're archaic or simpletons and, and on and on. You know, and in some respects, because of what's going on in the church, I understand the criticisms. You know, there is this prophecy in the Old Testament that if the church goes wayward, it becomes an object of ridicule. But when you're ridiculous, you should expect to be ridiculed. So the church must be a place of wisdom. I mean, there was a time in history where the greatest doctors and academics in the world were associated with the church. If you wanted to know anything, if you wanted to know the disciplines within science or geography or history, you went to the church. That's where it was. I mean, have you ever wondered why when you when you read about Newton or Copernicus or Galileo, it's always the church. They're in the church, and they're disagreeing or agreeing, but it was at the church now, with where the church has gone today, people go anywhere but the church. If you go to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., you see on the ceiling the three major disciplines, law, medicine, and theology. I mean, those three things were lifted up And to this day, as much as we like to ridicule lawyers, you need to get a degree to be a lawyer. You just don't show up and go, you know what, I have a law book, where's the courtroom? You need to have a degree to be a doctor, right? You don't just put on a stethoscope and go, hey, you know, I got this little thing here and I'm willing, you know. (laughs) But we do that with the church, don't we? We're like, the guy's got a Bible, and he's like, I'm willing, I'll lead the Bible study. I'll be the pastor. I mean, there, there's a, there was historically a rigor where you were examined whether or not you're qualified to speak about things that involve the souls of men. And so we need to, be, we need to recognize that we need not only a qualification, we need to recognize that if you are, in fact, one who's telling the truth, you are going to find yourself to be a source of torment, and you should expect to be ridiculed, and you should not sway under that ridicule. You need to fight the fight. You need to keep moving forward. You need to step forward. You think about the pre-reformers, Wycliffe, Huss. What happened to them? Do you think they were honored in their time? No, what happened to them, similar to what we see here, is that not only were they killed, they were exhumed, their bones ground ashes and thrown in a river so nobody would know where they were buried. So we see this disposition toward people who will tell the truth that they are not tolerated. They are utterly humiliated, and yet right here, right now, in 2022, I'm talking about Huss and Wycliffe. It would take me some research for me to tell you the names of the people who actually did that to them. They have faded into obscurity. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute, and I do appreciate the amens. Very Baptist of those. I've told you what a Presbyterian amen looks like, right? It looks like this. 
And I'm not suggesting for a minute that we should be looking for trouble. But I think Thomas Torrance was right when he said, the church, which is comfortable and undisturbed, is a church not true to the word of God. You've got to be willing to recognize that God may be causing, calling you to make trouble. And there's a time to speak. I mean, there's a time to remain silent, but I feel like the time to remain silent has kind of taken control. And the time to speak is in the shadows. John's readers needed to know that they were going to suffer through a time when the truth would be met with contempt and scorn. They needed to know that. He's ministering to them. He's going, look it, you need to know, and this is all part of God's design, that this is going to happen. I don't know. I mean, we fantasize that we would do well under such circumstances. Right? We're like going, yeah, I, I'll do it. I'll be, I'll be brave. I'll be the fighter. I'll be the one who stands up against you know, the darkness. But I have to say, I have sadly seen many people raised in the church, many people who have professed the faith, deny that very faith. And they deny it, and there's any number of reasons. Jesus taught in Matthew 13 why people do that. But in large part, it's because people have found that socially, politically, maybe psychologically and emotionally, the faith just isn't really accommodating them anymore. I came to the church to feel a certain way, and I just don't feel that way. I came to the church because I wanted to advance this particular agenda, and it doesn't seem to be happening, and so, you know, I'm going to leave and do it on my own, and, uh, and on and on. This seems to be the prime directive of our current educational system. Take a deep breath when you send your kids off to college, knowing that they're going to hear a lot of things that, that, that will be um, words of contempt if they dare raise their hand and say, I'm a believer. It almost seems to just be, it's like, I don't know, fatiguingly repetitious how both the educational system and the media and entertainment like continually target the Christian faith as uh, hypocritical, simple, unessential, and, and on and on. That's what happens. The attack is coming And John is telling his readers, just know that it's going to happen. Don't be surprised when things don't seem to be going your way. You've got this expectation of what it's going to be like when you say yes to Jesus. And then all of a sudden you realize this is a little tougher than I thought. Maybe I'll say yes to something else. Those things, let's be honest, they can be discouraging and they can be influential. But the apparent death Moving on to the good news. The apparent death of the truth is short-lived. So they're dead, and after three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters into them. So you have three and a half days versus three and a half years. Friends, the triumphs of darkness, they're short-lived. You know, I mean, somebody somebody once said, you know, they... They have their 15 minutes of fame. 
You know, you've got unbelievably powerful figures, you know, the, the Lenins of the world, the Stalins of the world, the Hitlers of the world, the Paul Potts of the world. They're here and they're gone. The truth seems to be snuffed out, but they get snuffed out and the truth continues. The third commandment, I think, indicates this type of disposition from God. That we read in that commandment that the iniquity of man remains a curse for how long? Three, four generations. So you've got this short period of time when it seems like darkness is getting legs. But for those who love God, it extends how long? A thousand generations. It's like, yeah, you just need to recognize that the darkness comes, and it comes for a little while, and then God kind of goes, you're done. But the lamp is ever-fueled by the olive oil. It never stops. The witness will again stand on their feet. It's like, it's like the valley of the dry bones in Ezekiel, right? One of the most beautiful, enjoyable passages in the Old Testament. You don't have time to get into the whole story, but you ought to read it. Ezekiel 37, I'm just going to read two verses, 5 and 10. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is what happened. The two witnesses appear dead. God breathes life into them. They stand on their feet, and here we are, 2,000 years later, talking the very truth that they conveyed. It's, an, it's a remarkable thing. Well, this elicits, this elicits great fear, we read in the passage, on all who saw them. So there's a fear. You know, when Jesus rode from, rose from the dead, the guards were afraid. Perhaps, perhaps, and we don't know for sure, this fear is a saving fear, or it's a dread in light of the revived church and its message of eternal life or eternal darkness. Maybe it's a bit of both. And perhaps the ascension into heaven that we read of is to be understood the way Paul taught it in Ephesians, where believers, you and I, are already raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places. Maybe it's that. It's hard to tell. In the Revelation, with so much imagery and symbolism, it's hard to tell exactly what that is. We also read that at the conclusion of the sixth trumpet, there's a natural calamity of an earthquake which instills fear, resulting in them giving glory to God. And some people think it's true you know, worship. Other people think it's not. Now, in our next message, we're going to move on to the seventh and final trumpet, which is the third woe. But before we leave the second woe behind, let us not lose the ministerial value of this sixth trumpet. The, the seven churches receiving this letter, they have been called to overcome. They have been called to persevere in the midst of false religion, in the midst of an oppressive government. I, I'll tell you, we're nowhere near as a people, as a church, where they were then. As much as we might disagree with things going on in Washington, D.C., it's not Nero. 
As much as we may lament, as I said earlier, the religious environment, they're not, it's, not, it's not the Pharisees. We, things are quite easy for us compared to that. Nonetheless, lest we be discouraged, we need to recognize that what the message here is in this sixth trumpet is you need to keep moving on. You need to persevere. Yeah, there's going to be judgment and there's going to be a witness and they're going to witness in sackcloth because it's going to be a difficult witness and then the witness is going to appear to be dead altogether. But don't allow that to stop you from maintaining and persevering in your faith. Know what you believe. Walk in what you believe. That's why it's so important that we get together on the Lord's Day where we set our sights on our eternal Sabbath rest and think of heavenly, th- heavenly things. If, if the revelation does anything for us, it, what it should do is give us a perspective from heaven in terms of what's going on in this world. And it's good news. He's caught up in to heaven and he's seeing what God is actually doing from a heavenly perspective. You know, you read in Revelation all of these difficulties and tragedies. You read about them in the entire Bible. Matter of fact, you may look at your own life and go, things are pretty rough. Things are pretty difficult. But somebody once said, really talking about the Scriptures, but I think it applies to our lives as well, for those of us who are believers, that all of life, all of Scripture, all of Revelation are a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. For a lot of people, Romans 8.28 is their favorite verse in the Bible, right? God works all things for good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. In Revelation, we see how that actually works. That which appears to be disastrous is actually a triumph from God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would have that heavenly perspective and that we would not be discouraged or are won over by the ways of the world, but rather, Father, that we would speak the truth of your word, the truth of the victory of Christ, of his conquering of death and darkness, and that, Father, we would not be dissuaded or discouraged knowing that your hand truly ordains whatsoever comes to pass. We do pray that such knowledge would cause us to ever persevere, ever overcome in the knowledge that you hold us in your hand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.